Welcome to Grumpy GDPR. My name is Ria, founder of No Ties Consulting. And my name is Milos Novic. I'm an associate professor of law. And hello, everybody. This is another episode of the Grumpy GDPR. Hi, Ria. Hi, Milos. How are you doing? Doing really, really well. Thank you. How about yourself? I am super excited about today because we have ta-da, a special guest. Yes. Who is our special guest today? Our mystery guest. Our mystery guest is actually Lina Koll, who is the head of the Norwegian Data Protection Authority. Welcome so much to Grumpy GDPR, Lina. Mm, thank you so much. So lovely to have you here. And first and foremost, thank you uh, so much for accepting our invitation. It's an incredible, incredible pleasure to speak with somebody in your role. Thank you for inviting me and giving me a voice on the grumpy GDPR. Would you mind telling us a few words about yourself? Well, I just, um, I think I can still call myself quite new in the role as the head of the Norwegian Data Protection Authorities. I started in August last year. But I've worked with the privacy and data protection for almost 30 years. I um, oh, wow. I wrote my first or my stu- my first and only student thesis in 1995 at the um, uh, Institute of uh, Legal Informatics, IRE, in Norway under the Professor Jon Bing. And um, I wrote about um, the subject was privacy and what we then called e-commerce, which was, you know, something um, uh, brand new mm-hmm. then in 1995. So that's when I started. So I worked as a private lawyer, as an in-house lawyer, as a researcher, uh, but all the time with data protection and privacy. That's wonderful. Then you're definitely um, very, very much uh, a perfect fit for our podcast. And a perfect fit for a data protection authority, if I may say, with that background from the private sector that I think is just hugely irrelevant. Uh, So, Lina, uh, you joined, you said, about uh, six months ago. Uh, What has been like the biggest revelation or aha moment uh, after that switch from being a lawyer? I think for me, the the biggest revelation or, you know, the... the um, surprise, if I can say so, was the uh, when I realized the enormous span there is to the responsibilities of the data protection authorities. Um, I guess as a private lawyer, I stopped reading GDPR at, you know, Article 32, 34, 36, <laughs> somewhere around there. But um, coming here, I just had to read Article 57, of course, which is mm. the one that's states all our obligations as a data protection authority and it's just one of the longest sections ever Mm -hmm. goes from letter a to letter v and as and you know letter v says something like and everything else that relates to privacy so it it kind of (laughs) it's an open end and I guess as a lawyer, I, I had only seen and experienced the top of the iceberg uh, mm-hmm. when I met with the Norwegian Data Protection Authorities and realizing uh, how much there is actually on our table was, uh, yeah, it was a mm-hmm. aha moment, I guess, for me. It is a really long job description, though, right? Yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> I think 
it's a, it's a struggle to get through Article Fifty Seven, you know, and and re, you know, putting material content to all of those obligations. It, it adds up. That is true. So all of us complaining how complex the GDPR is. I guess we haven't seen that much into that particular side. But as complex as it is, I actually want to take something up with you, which is that I remember during your starting months, you really placed a very heavy emphasis on helping out smaller companies and on actually emphasizing this role of the DPAs in providing guidance in supporting the SMEs. Mm. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, that? So, uh, what are your takeaways there? What can a small business actually do? Well, I think my emphasis was first and foremost on the private sector, not necessarily on the SMEs uh, uh, organizations or businesses. But obviously, SMEs struggle throughout Europe. And as far as we've learned, most of the data protection authorities um, in Europe also struggle in how to best support this segment. And um, if, you know, if that's a takeaway, uh, Norwegian SMEs are not alone in feeling kind of helpless around the GDPR. I think everyone struggles in in uh, managing uh, a very complex and uh, comprehensive uh, regulation with with sparse resources, and that you know that's the that's the span and the and the difficulty they face every day. That it takes resources, it takes money to mm-hmm. comply with the GDPR as a whole. Mm-hmm. And um, what we've, what I started in, uh, in um, the Norwegian Data Protection Authorities when I came here was um, what I tried to make a tiny shift in how we approach the private sector. And um, we will hopefully be able to do more of what we've been able to do towards the public sector, have more meetings, more dialogue meetings, um, lower the threshold for private companies, also um, more medium enterprises to come to us and and um, and ask for guidance, have uh, meetings, and uh, through that uh, help them in achieving compliance. But the, the one of the... the Issues that we face with our resources then in meeting the SME market is that there are so many. We can't meet yeah. with every small company in Norway or every small business which struggles with the GDPR. So we need to find a way to approach them and to reach out to them in a, in a, in a way which is very different from how we can work towards the public sector. But mm-hmm. I would also like to to mention that we've um, so uh, that we've um, have the support service on our phone, which is uh, we have a very skilled team who will answer small and big questions, which is being raised by companies, and then it's the project that we've started now when I came aboard uh, that it's the practical guidance and dialogue, which I hope will be visible shortly. Uh, on our webpage and in invitations to different sectors and markets. Wow, that sounds um, that sounds uh, very good, and I will be hitting F five on your webpage to uh, <laughs> to <laughs> monitor that when it comes yeah. and look forward to that. And it's uh, uh, we. I think we're doing the um, we're doing um, the SME market uh, after the summer. That's at least what we 
we're hoping for. Mm-hmm. But I think also from a general point, I think it's important um, to analyze how your company, if it's a small medium enterprise, how is your company affected by the GDPR and also take a risk-based approach to that. Um, identify your organization's needs and what, how it, how much it takes to comply and not to get too overwhelmed by the fact that larger companies, industrial companies or or in the public sector, they have large teams and organizations working on GDPR compliance. And I think for SMEs companies, it's important to take that into their work with the GDPR that doing a little is better than doing nothing. So if you get so overwhelmed by the fact that everyone else is talking about how big it is and how difficult it is, then at least try to to um, um, to get Just into uh, yeah to to make, take a risk based approach. Try to do something at least. I think it's mm. important. And it's interesting because um, so I had this discussion several times, and I often uh, mention my uh, beloved carpenter example of uh, those really struggling with the practicalities of uh, the GDPR, and at least like the transfer impact assessments. And in one of those discussions on uh, LinkedIn, I believe somebody said, "But yeah, we also struggle." And he represented a large organization. So despite having these huge in-house teams and in-house house lawyers uh, there are still challenges uh, for everybody but I think your your uh, point there is a very good one that mm. uh, you can't be so overwhelmed that you do nothing so mm. you have to start and you have to do something at least mm, mm, mm. and I think also for I think that goes for everyone really but I think Especially mm. for SMEs, because in larger companies, the compliance culture is often very visible because they worked with this for some time, not necessarily only the GDPR, but compliance on all sectors which are hit, which hit their company. But I think it's so important. I think picking mm. up on your point, Daddy, it's so important to, to work on the culture. Yes. If you forget the culture, you end up with paper compliance and that's not worth very much. So I think um, also that is something which is uh, has a, a little bit lower threshold really for also for SMEs mark, uh, companies because it doesn't cost that much to do some awareness campaigns, to do some training. That's a good possibility to actually raise awareness and, and uh, ensure compliance in a good way. Mm. Mm. Yeah, in this podcast, we keep coming back to Article 5 as a golden standard. Like, if you don't know where to start, go back to the basics. And honestly, in my view, Article 5 is basically yourself asking, yeah. is this reasonable? But I'm very glad that Ria took up uh, international transfers and uh, spoke a little bit uh, kind of in that direction of how complex things can be, both of you, actually. Because one of the most common questions I get is, you know, we can't really negotiate with vendors. Also, medium, large companies often say either nationally or internationally services are offered as take it or leave it. What am I supposed to do? Mm. And in those cases, I think that uh, that's, you know, I think that's where they feel they're really vulnerable. Mm. I think, um, you know, that's well-known problem uh, and it has been for years. Um some organizations manage to coordinate and negotiate together, which gives them a kind of a more market power and negotiation power. 
but um, not everyone are in the position to do that, uh, or most pe- most organizations are not. So um, I think you're you're um, addressing something which is a problem throughout Europe. We are facing with uh, large international companies or American companies who, who are kind of just stating the um, the terms and with no possibility to negotiate on any of them. But um, there, I don't, I'm afraid I don't necessarily have a good answer or a solution to that um, either. Milo, so um. Yeah, it's difficult for sure. And I think uh, what we could take some pointers from uh, is the Dutch DPIAs that are well known by now and uh, the amazing work of uh, Shura Nas, for example, and the privacy company on negotiating terms that ultimately end up uh, giving positive benefits for other uh, countries and, and regions as well. So I'd love to see that type of campaigning if you will more from uh, a government side of things rather than having the carpenters trying to negotiate with uh, with Microsoft and Google themselves mm-hmm. absolutely I, I agree and I think having again then we're into the the privacy commission report here which just came out here in Norway or came out um, just before Christmas it's um it's interesting to see how they address the need for um, a politic, a privacy politic here in Norway. And I think that the um, public bodies being aware of the, the power that they have in addressing this politically and in their institutions, I think that's that could be so valuable and being a, be a big help also for uh, the markets and the companies uh, within Norway, for instance, and also in Europe, if we had more of the public bodies uh, addressing these things towards these large um, mm. international companies, and I think an example with that, which has uh, which shows that this has been done to some extent of success, at least in Norway, is the um, cooperation that we've had we've done with Kins which is the Norwegian communities, commune, has negotiated under that umbrella. And that has actually, you know, given them the power to negotiate towards these um, suppliers in a Mm. completely different way than they would be able to do alone. So, again, bundling up, um, getting public bodies, getting um, politicians on board, that would absolutely strengthen the power to change things towards these large, big five companies. Mm. And I think for medium companies, for instance, it doesn't really hurt to ask and at least write down your concerns, reach out to these companies and say... Obviously, yes. I think that's a very good point also, Milos, because I think then you could at least show that you've had it on the agenda. Again, compliance is about documentation, yeah. right? <laughs> and you want to document that you know about GDPR. You want to document that you've tried to negotiate. So when when um, either someone wants to have an access uh, or they come with an access request or then if we come for audits, you want to show mm. someone that you've done something. And I think that's very important. I usually say less is not more when it comes to the GDPR. 
<laughs> and I, I have to say, I really appreciated the advice from uh, the Norwegian DPA uh, after Schrems 2 landed in July 2020. And I participated in a couple of webinars where both Tobias Judin and Alan Frank from the Danish DPA participated. And they also emphasized uh, several times that just make sure that you do something. Again, don't be overwhelmed uh, leading to apathy. You have to do something and document your discussion. So we're not asking you yes. to pull the plug on everything Microsoft and Google right away, but at least you have to be conscious about the uh, mm. ruling and you have to document those discussions internally. Mm. Mm. So I'm guessing that is also one key kind of takeaway for organizations. How about DPOs? Because uh, sometimes, you know, you're just new, you're starting in an organization, you say, we need to speak with vendors. And I guess then you have somebody saying, my God, like we don't have the time to speak with vendors. Uh, and uh, there is this increase uh, in this perception of uh, DPO role, kind of being a bother. Eddie, you're much better at explaining this. So why don't you say a few sentences? Well, I think you said it pretty well. The uh, the role of the data protection officer is uh, hugely interesting. You know, I'm a, a super fan. You, you're the fanboy of the DPC and I'm the fangirl of uh, DPOs. And it's such a challenging role. Uh, I think both if you are a new DPO or if you're an experienced one. So we wanted to ask you, Lena, do you have any key tips for both like the new and the experienced DPOs? Well, I think... My first, I can, I have three. I have three tips for the for the new DPO. I think, and the first one is understand your organization. Yes. If you don't understand the organization that you're given the position in or for, uh, it's impossible to succeed in the role. Yes. So, understand the organization, and the next one. I would emphasize is that ensure a common ground and understand your role mm. and get it in writing. Yeah. Because what what I've seen many times, and I think also from this perspective in the DPA, it's very often, um, it's not a conflict, but it's a stretch between the DPO and um, the business mm. and uh, the leaders and the board perhaps. So I think it's so important that when going into that position, you agree on, on, on the terms and your role. So that's something I would absolutely, as the second tip, go for. And also, then, as I said, get it in writing. Third, as for understanding the organization, start with the processing protocol. Mm. It's a key tool in assessing and getting the organization's level of compliance under your skin. And then ensure that you have resources and contacts. Mm -hmm. And I think in that perspective, it's uh, we have the DPO Association, which you can sign up for or, and join. But to have resources and other DPOs to discuss with and to level with, it's I think it's a very valuable mm -hmm. uh, asset for, for a new DPO uh, entering into the role. So what I'm hearing is that DPO needs to be really curious, you know, go out, understand what your yes. organization does, be uh, mm. be proactive, learn something new, speak with people, don't be afraid to kind of uh, just uh, reach out. Yes, I think that's, that, that's a good uh, summary of it. I, I think 
be curious, reach out, invite yourself to the table. Mm. But then it's a balance also. You shouldn't be there. You're not the data protection lawyer or the compliance lawyer necessarily when you have the DPO hat on. So, you know, it's balance. You have to balance it. And I think... Um, you know, both for, for new ones and experienced DPOs, it's also very interesting and um, useful to understand the interactions between the different roles in the organization and also uh, get a good grip on the drivers of the organization. Is the key driver in the in your company, is it, is it financial or is it security? You know, there's two mm. very different entrances into the, the business and the operations. So I think to learn that and to have that under your skin is uh, also key to succeed in both as a new DPO, but also going forward in and being invited to the table. And I think also then learn the company language, use the language. If you're coming in from, from um, a side door, so to speak, and, and just be very, uh, if you're very defendable about your role or the DPR or, you know, if you coming in from the side and just being a showstopper, I think it's, it could make it very problematic to succeed in the role. So mm. I would also actually say be a team player. You will most likely achieve more if you're a team mm. player. If you know the company language, you can, you know the drivers, you can speak the language with the different stakeholders that you have in your organization, you will most likely succeed better and achieve better privacy in your organization if you take that position more than if you put yourself out there as a, you know, the shiny knight on a horse being mm-hmm. the GDPR defender. Being a bit musical mm-hmm. into that, I think it's uh, important to succeed also. Definitely. Gosh, I have to say that I did a recording the other day on exactly this topic, uh, on uh, how to succeed as a new DPO. And uh, what you say, Lena, just completely overlaps uh, that discussion. And it comes down to culture, communication and balance, as you say. I love that take on it, that you need that balance as well. And using not only understanding where you are acting as a DPO, their strategy, ambitions and goals, but also look at what is the company branding and style? How do they describe their own employees? Instead of saying... Well, they, you know, our employees are data subjects, blah, blah, blah. What do they call themselves mm. as employees? Many organizations, they have like nicknames for the employees. Try to explain mm. the very definitions of the GDPR in the terms of the language mm. of where you are mm. acting as a DPO. That's yeah, yeah, it's a very good point. And I think also for... Um, uh, oh, I just lost... I was just going to pick up on something you said there, but because it's... Um, Oh, I lost it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you see, we, we talked about this before recording that we get so enthusiastic and yeah. we are so passionate about this. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's fine. Uh, Milos, where are we uh, on our schedule? Yeah, I thought we could pivot a little bit. I love we could talk. My God, we could talk for weeks, <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, I'm really interested uh, going back to your very, very long list of tasks. So one of the problems with that list is that it involves so many things which are just uh, so difficult to do at the same time and so difficult to balance. 
And I know there have been some discussions within Norwegian society already about this, but basically it boils down to uh, you both need to publicly argue for strong privacy practices, uh, which sometimes involves criticizing particular business models, which then actually really just turns into criticizing particular entities, more or less. Like we know that it's Facebook, which, you know, uh, deals with uh, tracking, for instance, online. But at the same time, you're a public administration body. You have a duty to handle all of your cases without any bias, uh, without any prejudice. And uh, you have actually been in the appellate body. So I think uh, looking from that side, how do you find any balance between the two? Well, I think, um, as you said, Milos, both of these tasks that tasks that you describe, they are found in our responsibilities laid down in Article 57. So we have to handle them. We have to find a balance in them. And um, as I see them, these roles are not contradict- contradictory. It's more one side is the proactive side, what we do. And the other part, when there is a complaint, is the more reactive part um, and I find that we balance this as good as we can in a good way and that we have you know given the resources that we have and and all the responsibilities so but it's um it is a stretch it is a stretch to, to manage it in a good way and um, I think also um, we're talking about how much privacy we can get out in society of with the resources that we have. Remember, we're about 60 employees. It's not that many, if you see the Article 57. And we have, in addition, a wonderful team of students uh, who's a great addition to our team. But it's we're not that many. And I think um, we have to, uh, to um, use our resources in the best possible way in order to achieve the most privacy, the best data protection out in society. So given that, I think also perhaps important to take in when we balance um, the decisions we do, how much resources, how much time we're going to use on both the proactive and the reactive part of our work. Right. Yeah, so so basically, uh, I, I totally understand what you're saying. So on one hand, uh, there are different methods of doing both things. And uh, I really noticed a shift in tone. Uh, and kind of even when you started with that very kind of friendly way of saying, you know what, private entities, public entities reach out to us when the tone of communication is much, um, what shall I say, it's uh, less critical and more encouraging to get in touch. I really think that makes a huge difference from that standpoint of the authorities. And then when it comes to case handling, it is a common challenge, uh, both in Norway in general for all the administrative bodies, but I think all around the world as well. Um, How do you pick your cases? (laughs) We don't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we pick our cases. We do pick our, our audits. But we are so, so, there's such a big part of our everyday um, work that is governed by others. You know, most of our time is governed by complaints and what, what's happening in, in the society and, you know, risks playing out, materializing, uh, data breaches. There's so much we don't control, obviously. So that takes up very much of our time. Mm. And it should, it should. So that's correct mm-hmm. that it's done like this way. But 
I think uh, given the discussion about or the question about how how do we prioritize how do you choose our cases it's I think it's very important to be aware that there's quite a small part of our time which we can actually use that prioritization on so that's you know for the for the small shift that you're identifying Milos I think that's for that part so we want to spend more time and be more available for private organizations for instance and also for the public um to give guidance and have a good dialogue continuously. But that will have consequences for what we have time to do on the complaint side. Mm-hmm. Because we don't have extra resources to put on the to the to the dialogue meetings, contact meetings, etc. Et we have mm-hmm. to take them from mm-hmm. from um, handling complaints, for instance. Um, but when it comes to the complaint side, we have to process and handle every complaint coming in so we're trying to balance that and we do that you know you most if you're interested in the gdpr and how we handle cases it's interesting to see interaction with the privacy appeal board you know we try Mm -hmm. they say yes or no and then we try again you know so i think we have a very close and good dialogue with the privacy appeal board and that we're kind of maneuvering towards uh, that balance mm. in a way that will make it possible for us to spend some more time on what we see now as providing more privacy, you know, more in the general uh, side of it, you know, towards into society, into companies for the private and, and the public sector. Mm. I think that's... Um, probably more effect of, of the resources that we have. A few few resources. And, few resources, and, and yes. you know, I think you raise an important point that people just should be aware of as well, because uh, we saw the uh, report from the EDPB about the DPA's uh, lack of resources. So that is a, a huge challenge for enforcing the GDPR as well. And if you only look at Norway, so the last time I checked, there were about 600,000 600,000 companies and uh, organizations in Norway. And you have about 60 employees. And what is that? 10,000 per person. So, (laughs) you know, we have to just acknowledge that this is a hindrance for the enforcement of the GDPR as well. So if we want more enforcement, we need uh, more resources for the data protection Mm. authorities. Yes, yes, I totally agree. Absolutely. Mm. Well, one could almost argue that not giving you enough resources and not making it possible for a data protection authority to work efficiently has consequences for EA agreement, and uh, I'm not the first one to make those arguments, but you know, always happy to lodge a complaint. Uh, we can talk about <laughs> <in> details. <laughs> but thank you so much for uh, your time, uh, Lena. We are just wrapping up here. So I had a couple of questions that I wanted to ask you uh, before we let you go. And uh, the first one is what makes you really grumpy about the GDPR? Well, um, Contrary to what my kids would say, probably, but I don't really do grumpy. <laughs> but I do get a bit activated when I see that GDPR is used more as a procedural tool to achieve something else than privacy. That's a good one. And Yes, and I must say that I saw this very often as a lawyer, 
Um, but we also see very much now from the DPA perspective. It takes up so much resources. Again, back to the resources, which are scarce. Mm. Data protection and the GDPR is used by individuals to solve other issues, to solve conflicts. For instance, a conflict on the workplace or an argument with a neighbor. You know, that mm. those kind of smaller things, which obviously means a lot to that individual. But it's, it's not really about privacy. It's not really that which is bothering that individual. So that... That side of it and that side of Article 57, the fact that we can't kind of forward those to someone else for solve, to, to, for them to solve them, um, that activates me a little bit. <laughs> and I must also admit that um, I did feel a bit of compliance fatigue related to some of the effects of the GDPR in practice when I was out there. Um, such as, for instance, the very complex situation that we have related to international mm. transfers, because it's not solvable for anyone. So it's mm. it's frustrating, and it I I think the term compliance fatigue is very real. I think mm. at least companies SMEs will obviously very quickly fall into that, but also larger companies and public bodies will feel that fatigue and, and the frustration around that. So those two activates me, at least. If I don't get grumpy, I, at least they just, yeah. And on the flip side, what's your favorite, favorite part of the GDPR? Oh, it's the same as you, the one that you mentioned, Milos. <laughs> I do love Article yes. 5. I do love Article 5. I think everything kind of sums up in Article 5. And yeah. When we first started working with the GDPR, when it came in 2016, I didn't really spend much time on Article 5. I thought, in under the Norwegian tradition, these purpose uh, sections on the beginning of, of uh, our laws usually doesn't really mean that much and doesn't really have that much substance. But this one does. And I think when we started, I was in the Privacy Appeal Board for seven years, so when we started working uh, with Article 5, taking that into consideration in our cases, cases it all in the discussions, it all kind of played out so well. It's such a good place to start. So I like, yeah, Article 5 is absolutely my favorite uh, in the GDPR. Ours and as well. Also, so yeah, you, yeah it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good one for everyone to like. But I think also... As a general point, I think the GDPR is one of the most fundamental legal instruments in ensuring um, our modern democracy. And I think the politicians in Norway should absolutely grasp that and take that and run. Um, yeah, I think that is a fantastic summary. Uh, the grumpiness uh, versus the, uh, the what's good about the GDPR. And it goes back to our discussion on the carpenter as well that I always say. Focus on Article 5 first and worry about the transfers just a bit later because you first and foremost need to understand the basics. Thank you so much for agreeing to be our guest. This was, I have to say that uh, I've really expected to be grumpy and everything, but it's just so, so nice to, uh, my God, this is going to sound strange, but to hear that um, all of us three are pretty much aligned yeah. here today. But thank you. Thank you so much, Lina, for your time. 
Yes, thank you for inviting me. Good luck.